Hello, this is Brian Bassett of Fogat, and I, you are listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, everybody, this is Robert from Robert, John, and the Wreck, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, everyone, Jared James Nichols here, and you are listening to Iron City Rocks. Oh! episode 520 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 520, we have two new guests joining us and an old favorite. We have joining us off the top of the show, Jared James Nichols, an amazing guitarist uh, who will be coming in to do a show in Pittsburgh in just a few days. And then joining us next, Robert John Burson of Robert John and the Wreck, who uh, an amazing live album uh, have signed on with Joe Bonamassa's Journeyman Records. They're going to be doing a show in Pittsburgh as well, so we will talk to him in just a little bit. And then finally, rounding out from Fog Hat, and also uh, from many of you Pittsburghers know Brian Bassett um, from Wild Cherry. Uh, they've got a new album out, so we're going to talk to him all about the album Sonic Mojo. But first, we're going to talk to Jared James Nichols. Jared, um, kind of caught my attention, I think, uh, the moment that Gibson extended a uh, signature model to his guitar, a single humbucker Les Paul, which I think kind of stood out. And we talked a little bit about that in the interview. An amazing guitarist, uh, really uh, carrying the torch for a guitar-driven rock and roll that isn't necessarily just blues. You know, there's a lot of blues guitarists out there, and that's awesome. Uh, Jared's a little more uh, full steam ahead with the rock and roll stuff. So we talked to him all about that. So let's get into that interview with Jared James Nichols.
Jared James Nichols. How you doing, Jared? Hey, man. I am doing great. Glad to be here. Glad to chat with you and excited about the show. Yeah, awesome to have a chance to catch up. This is the first time I believe you and I have spoke. You're going to be coming in November 28th to the Craft House. Uh, nice club show here in Pittsburgh. You've got a self-titled album out that's got some chart action, which is awesome to see rock music uh, on the charts. Um, can you for those who aren't familiar with with you, I mean, you you're kind of a, a oddly I would say this almost a, a kind of a youngster to be doing this kind of music, <laughs> you know, in your 30s still doing rock music, um, and from Wisconsin, so it's it's kind of a, a you're a bit of a unicorn in that respect, and I mean that in a great way. But what what kind of drove you to this kind of you know rock blues music, you know, because you grew up in an arrow. You know, you were born when a lot of the guitar-driven rock sort of took a nosedive. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, for me, like you said, I grew up in Wisconsin, and <laughs> there's one side of this question. I kind of joke about it, but mm-hmm. I kind of mean it. I grew up in such rural Wisconsin mm-hmm. that I didn't have the comprehension to know that what I was into was like already done. <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense? I feel like it was a 20 years behind where I grew up. Um, but the reality is I was always into classic music, you know, because my parents would, would listen to it. I'd hear it on the radio. 
But I remember when I got my first guitar, I was 15. At that point, I started to go to concerts. Where I grew up, there was a place called Alpine Valley uh, Music Amphitheater. And uh, I started to go to shows there right before I got my guitar. So I was able to see... You know, we'd go to Ozfest, or I would see mm-hmm. the Allman Brothers band, or whoever was playing Kiss and Aerosmith, and I started to be like, "Man, I I really like this." So when I got the guitar, it was so natural for me to go to, you know, learning Aerosmith riffs or Black Sabbath, and I fell in love with that. And then more so, even deeper, fell in love when I found the blues. Someone said, "Hey, you got to listen to Stevie Ray Vaughan," and I was like, "Who's that?" I heard yeah. it. I saw a video of him playing and it was just like lights out. I was like, wow, what is this? So I just got hooked through all that truly through the guitar and, and that, that energy. And um, I just started pursuing it. And, and the reality was I moved to Los Angeles. I was 21. I said, I want to start like a rock band under my own name or we can have another name. I just want to play this music. And you're right. I feel like the unicorn thing, you know, there's not, a, I look around, there's not a lot of people doing it. And, uh, that's why I feel like, for me to do it, I feel like it's so important. I'm like, let's keep going. Just to set the time frame, you were 21 in was 2010-ish when you moved to LA. Yeah. How how exactly? So when we think of people moving to LA, you know, people of a certain age, and I won't say how old, but people think of you know moving to LA, eating out of garbage cans, and the next thing you know, you're you're slash. Uh, this <laughs> is a different LA at this point, though. You're you're 20 years kind of past that what was the rock scene like when you got there almost non-existent like truly so check this out i remember when we moved there i saved up all my pennies i was i was working uh, landscaping and teaching guitar lessons mm-hmm. i said i gotta get to la i said there's at least an industry there mm-hmm. for music so when i got there it was almost like a scene of a movie where the guy comes out of the bus and he's like, where am I? Like, it's a different mm-hmm. world. Yeah. I remember walking down Hollywood Boulevard, listening to try and hear where ba- music. I was like, where are all the bands? Like, yeah. there should be bands. Playing. They're in Nashville you now. Know? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And uh, it was just so funny, man, because I was like that kid. And, and I remember, though, you know, I was like, I got, there's no plan B. I've got to figure something out. Like, mm-hmm. I can't go home. And uh, it just led me to, to, to push it and just figure it out and through you know failing 20 times one little thing would happen and right. you know just a classic classic try and figure it out without having any direction yeah now from a from a marketing of your music i mean you you mentioned the blues you aerosmith and, and some, some of that stuff was it easier do you think you know from a i'm gonna sell my brand i'm gonna you know move this music was blues an easier avenue to get traction than just rock at that time or was there still enough I, rock i got not uh i gotta be honest i feel like there wasn't in the blues mm-hmm. i feel like it was the rock thing but my heart was so attached to the blues mm-hmm. that like i was just kind of like well this is really what i love so maybe i can just spice it up and and add some rock in it like before I'd moved to LA, I never even thought about playing like rock. I mm-hmm. was like, oh, I'm just going to be a blues guy. But the reality is, and you know, not to be a, a, a downer or mean, but that industry in itself is so, so, so much uh, lower in in ways of, of making a living mm-hmm. than rock. Sure. So like, 
well, we could get you at the Viper Room and you could play with, you know, the drummer from Guns N' Roses. You could open for him or someone else. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, let's, let's go that route. So that's when it really started to flip. Yeah, I, th I thought about that as I listened to music because I think, you know, th this guy could, you, you certainly have the chops to go either way. And, and, you know, there are certain artists, you know, we just saw Kingfish on 60 Minutes a week or so back, and Joe Bonamas obviously has had okay. success. But they're a bit of a unicorn in the blues world. You know, there are many, many other blues musicians who are playing to very, very small rooms or aren't able to afford to travel. Um, you know, so it's it's interesting to think, you know, when you have sort of, a, you know, a bit of a crossroads, not to be corny, but, you know, with your skills, you could have really gone either way. It's, it's interesting to the thought process. So I see. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. You you ended up working with Eddie Kramer. Can you can you talk a little bit about how yeah, but that's like, you know, having deity, you know, in the room. How, how did that? How did that happen? I mean, you were still pretty young and early in your career at that point. Absolutely. So check this out. This is a funny story. So I end up meeting a guy that owned a music licensing company, and he just started to come to my shows because he was like, man, I love the way you play guitar. He was an mm -hmm. English guy. And he started to talk, and he basically goes, yeah, I used to engineer at Abbey Road. And I was like, Wow. You know, back in the 80s and I'm like sure. wow that's crazy and then he yeah I still have a lot of friends there blah 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 he goes you know you should work with Eddie Kramer that'd be perfect for you and I just like laughed out loud yeah, yeah sure great and uh, sure everyone would and he goes I'm gonna send Eddie some of your music and some videos and at this point I am not lying to you I never had been in a real studio mm -hmm. I was like making you know classic using garage band on my computer mm -hmm. this was that was so so just uh you know uh do it yourself and long story short we get booked a tour in europe this is like my first like it was really like my first real tour like with dates it was international and i'm, I'm thinking to myself wow okay so i end up they, they I, we go to europe and they say hey at the tour you're going to meet with eddie kramer in london at abbey road <laughs> and i'm like what yeah. so we go through this brutal like month and a half long tour and the whole time i'm like man th this is your chance like you better start working because you're about to meet up with eddie kramer so we go to abbey road and we start working with eddie kramer and i remember being scared out of my mind first off yeah. just to meet him but second you know, everything about this was scary to me because I'm sitting there going, how, how am like, this guy has worked with all of my heroes. But I, I always say I learned more in the two weeks working with Eddie than I've learned like my whole life, especially on like recording etiquette and getting right. a guitar sound and all of these things. And um, you're totally right. Work, but like working with someone like him, like I will feel honored about that till till the day i die man it was just insanity yeah and it's good that you, you take away what you learned you know i mean to to comment on that i think is really a sign of maturity you know a lot of people to say i made a cool record with him you know it did it did this on the charts or whatever but to walk away realizing that even if the recording had gotten erased you know that you still got a master class in how to be what you are you know 
for your vocation. Oh my goodness. You, you you learned from probably you know one of a handful of guys that uh, could shape a musician. That that's a a real honor. You know, even if the recording never saw the light of day, which obviously it did, but um, you know, a great opportunity uh, for you. No. So crazy. I feel like I have that with a lot of things. I'll I'll get put in these situations where I'm like, how did I get here? And above anything, like the product or, or making a few dollars on a gig or whatever, mm. it's always for me about the experience. That's the only thing I really take away. I'm like, wow, that's something I'll probably never do again. You know, like it's just so lucky. Yeah, I, I was even, as you were talking about kind of going through the tour dates in Europe, I imagine that had to be. You know, just the things you learn from from night in, night out, doing shows in different venues and power issues, and you know, different rooms and different audiences. And, you know, it's such a, a a formative time for a musician to to learn through those. You know, and kind of oh focus. yeah. The funniest part about my first Europe tour was my, I didn't have a phone that worked right because, mm-hmm. like, I didn't have an international plan. I was so naive. My bank card, not that I had money on it, but my bank card didn't work. <laughs> so I showed up in Europe without a dollar and out of phone. And I said, all right, I got to figure out how to get, you know, our one friend's phone works to call the tour manager to come pick us up at the airport. But like it was, I learned everything. I learned, what do I eat in Spain yeah. or where do you go? And, you know, like how do, how am I going to survive? So yeah. it, it was like a life experience that like was so, so shaping which yeah. I, I'm so um, grateful for. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of musicians anymore, you know, as I said before, we kind of focus on, oh, that was you know, that was beneath me, or you know, I just that was an awful experience. You know, you got to find the diamonds in that. You know, the the, the lessons you learn that that make where you ended up today better because of what you learned on that tour. So that's fantastic. Absolutely. Um, I, I have to ask, you know. The Black Star Amplification Company, uh, obviously a big fan of Black Star myself. Um, the JJN20, how, how big of a thrill is that to, to you know? <laughs> Man, that's crazy. I still I still think about it, and I'm like, wow, I can't believe like we did that. And like, what's really cool about that is is especially for Black Star. When I moved to LA, the first amp I plugged into was a Black Star. I'm like, what is this? And then I started getting them on loan. You know, like I would loan them. And my relationship grew with the company to the point where they wanted to do my own model. And I'm sitting there going, are you sure? Are you thinking (laughs) of the right person? (laughs) But the model, too, what was so cool about it was I remember when we released it, it was such a success for them. And, of course, for me, but I was just so happy that, you know, people were into it. And I remember I was at the NAMM show and I was there for four days talking about that and the guitar I released at the same time and it was like I couldn't believe it was happening like I never dreamed that far I still right. use that amp to this day yeah that's that's awesome and I think it's it's nice to hear what you just said you know is a key takeaway there for me is you're using the amp you know so many people you know you've seen it a million times where people will put their name on something for the endorsement deal but you know when you watch oh, what yeah. they're doing, they've got a fractal, or they've got you know the same JCM 800 that's you know tucked behind the curtain, um, that's actually on powering, you know whatever. Um, it's really cool to see an artist, um, which kind of leads me to your your partnership with Epiphone. You know I see mm-hmm. 
the P90 and the single coil, which I think to a lot of people probably look at the guitar for you know it's you're so used to seeing two or you know Kiss fans used to seeing three pickups jammed in there. You've got one. Was it um, was it just for the tonal aspect you went with with one so that you had more wood in between the neck, you know, or did you just never use the neck pickup or, or how did that kind of come about? Well, honestly, what what it came about was so when I play, I don't use a pick, right? Okay. So when I I I'm a lefty, so the pick never felt right in my hand, so I play mm-hmm. everything with my fingers, and. I remember I loved the feel of a Les Paul. I loved the sound, mm-hmm. but I found myself only using a bridge pickup because if I went to that neck, I felt like it got a little muddy sounding. Yeah. And beyond that, I would always, my hand, I would always like break my nails or like feel like that pickup. I was like, if this neck pickup wasn't here, I would mm-hmm. like have so much more room. Yeah. So I ended up ripping it out of my original and I was like, and people were like, what are you doing? Like, oh, I just like the way this feels more. It feels better for my sound and my just my actual playability on the instrument. And then people started to recognize that. And I think, you know, a lot of people say there's a lot to be said when there's only one pickup on a guitar, yeah. a lot less wiring. There's not another magnetic pole. I definitely think it gives it its own vibe. Mm-hmm. It definitely has something to do with the tone. But also the coolest part for me is, like, it makes you play different. Like yeah. you have to get all of those sounds out of that one pickup, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, I was saying, but when you mentioned about the picking with your hands, I mean, you would have been—I'm assuming—behind that neck pickup, even if you were using it, which would certainly change the the sound of it. it you know, and people who play Esquires, for example, love that—you um, know—the kind of tonality of having that single pickup in a in a Telecaster. So it makes sense. It's just, so it's like. You know, one of those things you just see it, it kind of catches your attention as a, you know, someone who's seen a million people play a million different iterations of the Les Paul. It almost, you know, mm-hmm. you look at it quick enough and it almost kind of reminds you of the bass that they made that looks like a Les Paul. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's really cool. So, um, self titled album, uh, doing well. Were those songs that you sort of put together sort of during the downtime that everyone was forced upon? Um, through the 90s, mm-hmm. or I'm sorry, through mm-hmm. the, the 2020s, I should say. Um, songs, do you guys write as a trio, or do you typically do most of the writing? So, truly, you know, I typically do most of the writing, and the only reason for that is because I'm crazy and I never stop. Mm-hmm. So, like, the band will be like, we'll do a tour, and then, like, I'll go home and I'll have too much time, and I'll be like, all right, I want to write. I'm writing. But this record in particularly was one of the first times I've ever had like a true stop because mm-hmm. audio is always, you know, it's in between tours that I'd be writing or I'd be writing when I'm on the road. Like, like I was writing at any time I could. And this record was the first time, like all of us, I was at home. I was like locked up and I'm like, okay, I'm writing for my sanity. So with this record, all of these songs, you know, it's it's definitely a little bit more. I I tried to dig deeper on uh, on the, not only what I was actually playing, but what I was actually saying, and I just tried to go with so many different shades instead of, you know, mm. like sometimes you hear one record and it sounds like the person's last record. I wanted yeah. to make sure I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Was when you write though, do you? bounce the songs off like do you have somebody whether it's ryan or lewis or, or 
you know, partner or whatever that you kind of bounce things off, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the muse or somebody to say, hey, that one's good or no, maybe take that one back. Or how do you kind of self-check yourself? Oh, man, I really do. And with this record, too, it was the first time and it was over Zoom, which is kind of funny, but I started mm-hmm. to do co-writing. Okay. So I would write with other people. And that I started to really get into because it almost like having some, a lot of times I feel like when I'm writing singular, it's like I have this idea, I roll with it, I roll with it, I roll with it, and I feel like it's really strong. And then maybe I'll play it for someone and they'll go, yeah, that's cool, but what if you tried this? Yeah. And then they'll take me somewhere completely different. I used to have a hard time with that because I was so maybe headstrong that I go, no, this is how it's got to be. But now I find that you know, having more people in the room that I trust mm-hmm it can take it somewhere else and it can show a different side of it, which I think is really healthy. So with this record, everything I would check with like my friends. And then when I got with the producer, Eddie Spear, you know, we sat through everything and like he would, I would say, Eddie, tell me what you really think. I'd show him something and he'd go, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. And I was like, Oh man, he doesn't like this. And then he'd say, take this back, take it back to the drawing board. What if you, what if you, you know, instead of playing it like a slow kind of bluesy thing, what if you played it like Black Sabbath, Children of the Graves? Mm-hmm. I'm like, what? Like he would throw this stuff at me that was so outrageous. And I'd always like land somewhere kind of in the middle. And it would be like, wow, I really like this, you know? Yeah, I could see that. I mean, that's that's a, exactly what you want a producer. It's a hard, I'm sure it's a hard thing to hear, you know, when someone says they don't like it. But I mean, sometimes you, you need that. Almost, you know, second set of eyes or, or you know, just a, a direction or a thought or, you know, like I said, a muse that kind of just moves you in a direction that you didn't think of. Um, Absolutely. You know, because obviously the songs, you know, I mean, there's no denying when you listen to the album, you have the guitar chops for days. But, you know, the songwriting is, is you know, that's a, such an art. Um, you know, It really is. And it's something that I feel like, you know, it's all about the song. It really is. You hear people say that. But it's true, you know, it's, um, at the end of the day, you know, I love the guitar and I love playing so much, but the guitar is simply a tool for the song. And that's really where my focus goes. And although, yes, it's guitar driven, there's mm-hmm. just so much to it that it's, you know, the song is sacred. And I love that. Absolutely. Well, Jared, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to catch up with us. You're going to be at the Craft House here in Pittsburgh on the 28th of November. Looking very much forward to seeing you. Have you started kind of putting stuff together for the, the follow-up record, or is that still too soon? Oh, yeah. Oh, no. We've, you know, I've, I've been writing. I'm, I'm, my head has already been there, I would say, for the past few months, really thinking where, where it's all going to go next. And uh, we have tours lined up for basically until the end of spring. So right now my hope is that before the summer gets crazy, we'll be able to duck into a studio for two weeks and really start uh, hashing out the next record. Awesome. Jared, we can't wait to see you. You'll be here in a little over two weeks now, man. Thank you so much for your time, man. Thank you so much, man, and uh, thanks for everything. All right, as we mentioned in the interview, Jared James Nickel will be at the Craft House here in Pittsburgh on the 28th, so by the time you're listening to this show, that is likely either tomorrow, maybe tonight, um, or, or unfortunately maybe yesterday. So, you want to check that out tickets will be available at the show again the craft house on the 28th also coming to the pittsburgh area robert john and the wreck who um 
a band that has done, done a live album and now a studio album with Journeyman uh, Records, which is Joe Bonamassa's record, uh, but have not new to the music industry. This is a band that I think is, is we talk about in that interview, has kind of snowballed the amount of respect in, in uh, praise for the live performance from this band. Um, obviously an, an amazing recording artist that they are as well because it is you know and not just blowing smoke the albums there's no throwaway tracks on any of these albums um, so they're kind of a force I think in the music industry one that I think you you should expect to hear much more from Robert John and the Wreck so without further ado let's talk to Robert John Burrison Robert John the Wreck. We have the man, Robert John Burrison. How you doing, John? Robert? Uh, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm excited to get a chance to talk to you guys. You guys have been making kind of a, I really like to think of it almost like a, a snowball rolling downhill uh, with the band, kind of gaining momentum <laughs> uh, from, it's been what, 10 plus years since you guys kind of started rolling. Um can you talk a little yeah. bit about how it's been for you? I mean, you guys have been really known as a very exceptional live band. Is that like if you were to prioritize, like when you're doing songs, I mean, is it come in your head when you're doing stuff in the studio? We need to cut this live. We need to be, you know, kind of live up to that reputation. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's always feels better when you play live in the studio. And, um, you know, I mean, sometimes we even play them live before we get in the studio just to make sure they feel good. Because um, <clears throat> the, the worst thing that can happen is you record a song in the studio and then you play it live and it doesn't feel very good. Right. You know, and then you wish you could go back and change some stuff. But we just change it for the live show no matter what. Because mm -hmm. uh, we always want it to feel good and, and we want the crowd to enjoy it and everything. So we definitely cater more to the live show, I would say. Is um it is and it, yeah, it's, it's really, really important to us. The challenge when you debut music live as opposed to on vinyl or a CD or whatever, because of the fact that a third of the audience has got, you know, an iPhone or an Android kind of in your face, does that discourage you from that kind of stuff or it just doesn't really matter to you? No, not not too much. I mean, we've we've played a lot of songs that we haven't released yet live. Um, and you know, I mean, if someone captures it and says, Hey, there's a new track, then it just gets people excited. Um, you know, I think the, the bigger point for us or the, the, the more worry we make sure if we're going to 
try it out live. Let's make sure we know what we're doing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but uh, yeah, we're not, I, I'm not too worried about someone capturing something that's not out yet because, you know, it's a, uh, maybe it's an iPhone video that, you know, a couple of people will see. Yeah. It's, <laughs> if it sounds good, we'll probably post it. <laughs> that's, you know, it's interesting because I've had had similar questions to artists who have been around with much longer career that just go absolutely despise the idea of having something kind of leaked. But it's interesting to hear your take on that. I think, you know, maybe it has something to do with the era in which your band has gained momentum as opposed to, you know, a band that's been around for a long time that knew how it was. 30 years ago um oh yeah i'm, I'm sure it is it's yeah I mean, different. <laughs> different it's certainly a different business that you're doing this in and 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 to that point you guys uh you know i listen to your music and i think okay this could be yeah i've heard the, the term southern rock i i, I kind of just think of it as a straight on rock band but i don't hear you know when i do listen to it, i think boy someone could have just tweaked a little bit and turned you guys into a quote country band even almost does does that sure. does that kind of do you feel like you have to follow into a niche or, or do you feel at this point in your career you guys can kind of go in any direction you want you know i hear mandolins for example which isn't necessarily I mean, yeah. obviously led zeppelin used mandolins but um do you ever think about that i mean because quite frankly there's a lot of money to be made in country music you know you look at bands like zach Brown yeah you know and, and some of those artists yeah for sure yeah, I mean, I, I just saw Zach Brown two weeks ago. He was down here in Southern California. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, we, we've never really cared much about what genre we're technically in. Mm-hmm. Um, we just like to write music and play music, you know, and, and and I feel like the songs itself kind of will tell you what, what avenue to go down. I mean, right. you know, if, if, you, if you're sitting in a room and, and you write something and it just has that country feel we're going to push into it you know you yeah. sit down and write something that has a rock feel push into the rock you know yeah um I, I think i think the genres are so close i mean southern rock and country are are practically the same depending on how twangy your voice is and yeah. how you what instruments you use you know and, and same thing with rock and roll i mean you can take a rock song and give it to a country singer and it, it's a country song you know yeah. um just depends on how you produce it and how you how you do it. And then we just kind of feel it out and, and, and play it how we think it best portrays the song itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, if a song's a little, little, little more country, then we're all for it. Take it. The, the, the other thing, you know, I mentioned that, you know, kind of the, the, the legend of Robert John, the wreck is great live band, but I also, you know, in reading, and I don't usually get too hung up on record reviews. I usually like to use my own ears. But, you know, a lot of the critics talk about your albums as being very complete. You know, there's not a lot of filler. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you guys write music? And, you know, when you're putting out a 13-song album, how you know how many songs do you go through to kind of get the best of the best or the ones that are cohesive together? Yeah, you know, I mean, we – I mean, man, I – I don't know how many songs we have written for every record, but I know, I mean, I know we're playing around with like 22 sometimes, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and far, as far as that time goes, or, or you think of something that you wrote two years ago that just, we never tried. Um, but we're always trying to, you know, put the best songs on the record. You know, we don't just write 10 songs and then record them. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we try to, 
come up with ideas and come, you know, if we're in the room together um, and we, we play three different ideas, you know, and we go home and one of them stuck in our head, we usually stick to that one. Right. Um, you know, and we're, we're just trying to come up with, you know, we're just trying, trying to be songwriters, <laughs> sure. you know, and uh, trying to put, trying to put the best songs on a record that we, that we have in the arsenal at the time. And, um, you know, I think, I think every songwriter wants to write the best song. Right. right. And, uh, I, I think it, we, we just kind of write the best songs for us. Yeah. You know, our, our favorites, you know, the ones that we picture playing live, that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, more than, more than, Hey, I don't know. This song is not going to be on the radio because it's too weird. We don't, yeah. you know, we don't really think too much about that. We just kind of enjoy what we do and, and hope that it, it translates to people. Yeah. Um, yeah. If it's translating to us already. Yeah, I would think that the the equation of the radio is probably a tough one at this stage of American radio to even consider, you know, what would get on the radio. That's sometimes yeah. a crapshoot. Um can can you talk a little bit about the <laughs> the partnership you have with with obviously you, you've kind of entered into the world of J&R Adventures with Journeyman Records and you worked with Kevin Shirley. Um can you talk about how that kind of started up working with Mr. Bonamassa? Yeah, I mean it, it's it's super natural and not anything too complicated. You know, we we were invited on one of his cruises. <laughs> I don't know why I said it like that. Cruises, um, the blues cruise, and you know, I mean, we're not a straight up blues band, but uh, you know, same thing with country. You know, it sure. kind of all goes together at some point. And uh, yeah, we just got to get to know the team and, and get to know the guys, and we uh, got invited to another one and, and kept that relationship going. Um, so we had known each other for years and, and just, uh, you know, we, we had a connection. And, uh, so we decided to, uh, we saw fit to work together and it's been great. You know, I mean, it's been a, a really good partnership we've had and, and, um, yeah, we hope to see where it goes in the future. Yeah. I mean, so for if right into the light and the, in the live album or any indication you, you know, the kind of the sky's the limit, you, you guys are kind of that fun point in your <laughs> career where you start having to probably, and maybe I'm wrong, but you probably have to do a little bit of work on what you're going to do live and what you're going to leave off at this point. You know, you've got a number of albums under your belt and stuff. Is that, is that a fun problem at this point to try to figure out, you know, I'm going to like to add some new stuff. What do I take away? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a problem that we never thought about until in, you know until you have that problem. Yeah. Um but you know yeah, I mean some songs we we really love to play and we play them and then we're like are we playing this too much, you know? Um let's let's play this other song and then you know you have to also think about the fact that people are coming to the show to see certain songs and you don't want them to to leave disappointed. So um yeah, it's a it's a it's a delicate you know, mixture of uh, playing the songs we know people want to hear, playing the songs we want to play, and, and playing the songs that that uh, that we need to play. You know, just to if you if you don't play a song for for a year, you're gonna lose it. And you know, yeah. but then when you bring it back, it's it's almost even better um, than before. Yeah, I, mean, I imagine which that's, is always a fun part. Yeah, that, that's a great you know problem to have when you when you have more so you know it's you remember you know your first tour you're like how am i going to fill this amount of time you know you've got 40 minutes or whatever it is oh yeah they push you off the stage and you're like i'm we're gonna have to play this song twice uh and then you blink your eye and you're to the point where you're like oh we're gonna have to you know cut this song out or 
if we leave this song and it's going to be a mutiny. Um, do, do you have a lot of uh, your, your music strikes me as, is the kind that where you look out in that audience and see some repeat fans night after night. Is that do you kind of have those people at this? Oh, stage? Sure. You know, the hardcores that, that come. Yeah, out I mean, and, yeah, we have we have people that come to six or, you know, even seven shows on a run just because they have the ability to. And so, you know, and, and those people we get to know. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a blast. You know, I mean, anyone walking through the door, I think is, is an, it's an honor to be able to play music sure. and have people walk in the door to see you play, you know? So mm-hmm. um, the fact of seeing some people come night after night and uh, yeah, it's, it's an amazing feeling. And especially, you know, when we play, maybe like two hours away, we know someone's going to come. So we try to switch up the set at least by one song, you know? Um, We don't play the same set every night at all. (laughs) And and that's, that's gotta be fun. Correct me if I'm wrong, but as as a musician to kind of have that variety in the set, um, you know, keep it fresh for you. I mean, I'm sure there are points where you're like, you you know, there's bands out there that could do their show with their eyes closed, you know, and and you can, as a fan know, you know, if you, if you make the mistake of watching YouTube before you go to see a band, you've, you've seen the whole show. There's not going to be. So, uh, (laughs) you know, from a fan perspective, it's great. We we try to make sure that's not the case. Yeah. Um, Try to keep people on their toes. Do you guys write, like, obviously ride into the light has been out for, you know, what feels like a couple of minutes, but um, do, do you start putting songs, you know, together from sound checks, you know, sitting on the bus, kind of noodling around, or are you guys more of a, uh, you know, we're going to just wait till we're off the road and do a brain dump and, and recharge the battery and then hit it in 2024, 2025. Yeah. You know, we used to, we used to wait till we got off the road and then actually like decompressed and went into the room, but, as busy as we are, we realize that that doesn't really work. So uh, yeah. we've been doing a lot. Of- not sure everything's right, but then we usually have a few more minutes to play around. So we'll just, you know, I feel like the sound check's more of like an idea incubator. Yeah. Uh, you know, we just we just throw we just throw some shit at the walls and and you know if something sticks, then we remember it and work on it later. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of the the next record coming up was was a sound check you know, idea, you know, and then right. we just got in the room and then we had the idea. So we put it together there. Fantastic. Well, Robert, I want to thank you so much for the time today. Again, you're going to be coming in to do a show at Jurgles. Great place up in Warrendale. Just yeah. North of Pittsburgh on December 6th. Ought to be a packed house for you guys. And I'll imagine it won't be too long before you guys are too big to play there. So I recommend everybody get out and see you there <laughs> while they still can, man. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're excited. All right, again, Robert, John, and the Wreck will be at Jurgles on the 6th of December. Tickets available at Jurgles.com, or you can go to DruskyEntertainment.com, or if it's too hard to find those for you, just head over to IronCityRocks.com and check out the show notes for episode 520. We'll have a link to all that information for you. Joining us, uh, last but certainly not least, uh, a Pittsburgher at heart, Pittsburgher in reality, Brian Bassett, um, who has been with Foghat for an inordinately long period of time. Uh, I remember talking to him, I think, for the first time probably almost 10 years ago for Iron City Rocks. Uh, Brian is is a producer extraordinaire, uh, and I think a great asset to have in the band. Also, um, Wild Cherry, 
Uh, obviously, he's got a history that goes back into the club scene in Pittsburgh, and we touch on that a little bit. So absolute pleasure catching up with Brian Bassett. So without further ado, Mr. Brian Bassett of Foghat. It's 2 a.m. Long way to go. It's dark all over. Moon starting to glow. Gotta stay awake. No matter what I do. Wanna see my girl when the night is through. I'm driving on. And I gotta be strong. It won't be long I'm driving on She'll be waiting For me to pull in I'll be so happy To let love begin Having a way Couldn't get home Too long gone And I'm driving on And I gotta be strong And it won't be long I'm driving on and we can't rule out Wild Cherry in there just for posterity's sake. How you doing, Brian? I'm doing great, John. How are you doing? Great, great. Awesome to have an opportunity to talk to you and even more exciting to talk to you with new music forthcoming from Foghat. Um, Sonic Mojo, 
coming out here in early November. It's going to be what a week, two weeks from now, on the tenth of November. Yeah, it's November. Sorry, tenth of November is uh, the date it drops out, and uh, we have, we actually have three pre-releases out there on the internet for people to check out. So, but the whole album is going to hit on November tenth. Yeah, how, how uh, you know you guys have if you've been in this band now? Am I right? Twenty four years, twenty three years, somewhere in that ballpark. Yep, and I actually twenty seven, counting my four years with Lonesome Dave. Uh, you know, back in the late eighties, early nineties. So yeah, it's a long time. <laughs> yeah, you're you're to the, almost to the point of getting like the the gold watch or something for for your time at time <laughs> surf. Um, can you talk a little bit? I mean, you guys did Last Tram Home. I remember that one was was a big release. I think that might have been when you and I last spoke. Um, you know, doing new music. Um, you know, in in 2023 for a classic rock band it is a bit of a obviously a financial risk because you're putting a lot of time and money and, and effort into this but can you talk about what what brought these songs to light in in th- this time um yeah several things well first of all when we travel around the country you know with our concerts uh, when we do sound checks um you know we'll play a couple songs from our set but we always like to jam on an old blues song or something our mm-hmm. our singer scott holt has been with us a couple years now this is his uh, first recording on a Fargat record with us, although we did have a Earl and the Agitators release some years ago as a side project because we were you know, writing a lot of songs and didn't have any place to put them. But anyhow, um, with Scott out there, you know, he's uh, played with Buddy Guy for over 10 years, and uh, so he has an encyclopedic memory of blues songs. So, you know, we always jam on some kind of things like that. Rod, uh, Roger has been humming this Rodney Crowell song for some time, you know, so we decided to figure out what song it was, and you know, we used to say, I don't drink as much as I ought to. (laughs) He goes, what song is that? (laughs) So we looked that up, and it was a Rodney Crowell song, so Song of Life. So, you know, songs like that pop up, and, uh, and you know, when we hit, you know, a song that really sounds good with us playing, we go, hey, let's let's go ahead and track it. You know, the... uh, I've been a recording engineer most of my career as well, and I worked at King Snake Records as an engineer producer for close to 20 years. So we have our own studio uh, down here in Central Florida, and um, so it's just that's where we rehearse at the end of every year, preparing for our uh, concert season. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we get a, an idea or a germ of an idea, um, I, I just hit record on my equipment over there, and, and we can track stuff. And so that's I recorded the whole album, and as I have the last several Foghat records. So that sort of takes a lot of the pressure off it financially and otherwise. You know, we just get yeah. together, record at our leisure, and um, and I mix it, and then and then we hand it over to our manager Linda, who is Roger's wife, our, and she starts you know dealing with the business end of like you know getting it distributed and all that kind of thing. But from a creative standpoint, you know, we just like to write songs and uh, and record them most you know for our own pleasure really, yeah. and record songs, uh, old blues songs that you know that's sort of a fog hat tradition to take classic blues numbers and rock them up a little bit so you know just us enjoying ourselves playing and recording and hopefully when we get a well when we get a song a group of songs like sonic mojo um you know when we get 12 or songs that hold together as a package then we start you know the process of you know putting them out there on the world so so our fans can hear them so so it sounds um, that's pretty much it you know we do that we do it all year long you know we capture ideas it sounds like describing the process that you and Roger and Rodney and Scott have the fun and Linda has to do the work, you know, trying to get <laughs> distributed. Um, yeah, well, I tried to. Yeah, that's pretty exactly right. <laughs> so, what, does and, this? Uh, 
But she does all the she does all the artwork and all the layout for the um, you know the design of the package and everything. So she gets creative as well. But you're absolutely correct; she does most of the work. All the all the <laughs> all the drudgery type stuff. Um, did, does this kind of help you know the longevity of the band? I mean, obviously you've been working with Roger for a long time. Um, does this help kind of keep it fun doing some of these types of projects as opposed to just, I mean, in, in all honesty, Foghat could tour and and do the same 15 songs and, and do a decent draw anywhere you went, uh, you know, at this point. But does this kind of keep it more interesting for, for the four of you mu- musically to, you know, have something different to think about and some different songs to play and, and the such? Absolutely. I mean, we're always going to, play the hits you know the hits the five mm-hmm. or six songs that everybody is, is familiar with but just for our own you know entertainment and to keep on you know interested in what we're doing you know yeah. we always have new songs or pull some you know we'll pull out a second album or third album we just went through a while well, we're still going through a series of years where we're like on uh, anniversaries of releases so you know we'll go pull some old tracks from the older records mm-hmm. and throw some you know, new songs in there and throw some covers in there and we have a you know a great fan base, and we don't want to play the same fifteen songs to them every right. year when they come see us. So, you know, we'll always you know low ride full for the city. I just want to make love. You know, those three are pretty much guaranteed. Everything else is up for change. And you know, at the end of every season, we you know do our social media thing and ask for you know what songs do you want to hear next year. You know, whether it be Honey Hush or you know Midnight Madness or any one of the deep tracks. Mm-hmm. You know, um, night shift or uh, you know anything, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's just being creative. I mean, that's the fun of being a musician is yeah, learning new songs and and of course coming from Pittsburgh, um, you know, I, which had a the most fantastic club scene in the '70s in particular. So many bands doing uh, you know playing four or five nights a week, four hours a night, you know, learning new songs every couple of weeks to keep up with the charts. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a great proving ground for, uh, you know, repetitive, you know, just learning new stuff and playing new stuff. It was, uh, you know, was a great way to learn my craft. Anyhow, I love playing in Pittsburgh. And, and uh, yeah, so you're, that's right. It just keeps, um, you know, the fire and the engine going, you know. And we're just, we're, we are musicians. We love to play all kinds of different stuff. You know, there's a couple country-flavored songs on here. You know, yeah. Scott being from the Nashville area, he has a little bit of a country twang in there. Plus, he's a great blues band, so that brings back a lot of uh, the original Foghat blues rock roots into the sound. Yeah. So, and uh, yeah, and we just impl- enjoy playing with each other. And <laughs> let me put that differently. <laughs> we enjoy yeah. playing music <laughs> together. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, so that's what keeps it interesting for us, you know, that and the travel. Yeah, I imagine that the travel sometimes is, is a blessing and a curse. I mean, it, it, I think everybody thinks, you know, it, it would be cool to see all the places. I'm sure you've seen corners of the globe that many will never see. But uh, I'm sure there are times where you're like, boy, I'd like to just kind of edge out and not have to to do this. Um, yeah, it's always, it's always great when you get there, but getting there is the thing. You know, we our, yeah. our saying is we play music for free. We get paid to travel. But uh, yeah. <laughs> And that's but once the, you get to some place, then you're then you're there, and you're you know you can then you can relax and check out you know wherever you happen to be you know I, I when I was with Molly Hatchet for seven years, we played a lot in Europe, and I really enjoyed that you know touring mm-hmm. around. It was sort of a paid vacation, and um so but uh, 
we play primarily with Foghead in the United States. We get overseas for some festivals here and there. But yeah, I've been pretty much every nook and cranny. And you know, I think in one week uh, last month, I was in Anchorage, and then we went to Seattle, and then uh, we went to uh, uh, somewhere in New York, and then we went back to Santa Fe, I think, all in this two-week period. So, um, you know, get to jump around and see all the parts of the country. Are there, at, at this point, you, you see this with a lot of bands, will you know, call out some country in Europe or some state that you wouldn't think of. Are there, are there pockets where, you know, you know if, if, if Fog Hat rolls in to do a show, you're going to do triple what you would in a normal market? Is that, are there pockets in the world like that still where, you, you know, you guys will? Yeah, I think, you know, I think so. I mean, we've always been really strong in the, in the Midwest mm-hmm. and, um, and, and California, you know, those are, seem to be, you know, two hot spots for us. We've been playing a lot in New York. You know, it sort of goes in waves too. I mean, we there was times where we didn't play hardly uh, up in the New England area at all, mm-hmm. and then just this, this last year or two, we've been up there several times. So, but I think in general, classic rock is just you know still hanging in there pretty good all across the country. Yeah, we do a lot of a lot of uh, open you know city festivals and all age um, concerts. And we get big crowds, and we, especially when we play uh, with other classic rock bands. You know, we did yeah. several shows with ZZ Top this year, and then they were near sellouts. And George Thorogood, we did some shows with him, big crowds. We're going to play with Grand Funk Railroad, which is a great bill up in uh, Gary, Indiana, this uh, day up to tomorrow. And uh, th- and that, and then uh, yeah, we do a lot of casino work, too, which is funny. I guess we're the new demographic for this, yeah. for what they wanted, you know. And uh, and so they have they've been very accommodating. The stages are bigger. The arena, you know, they're like small yeah. arenas now, where yeah. it's not like the old days. And uh, they're very accommodating for your classic rock bands. And and classic rock bands, everyone's out there still. Stick, Kansas, you know, they're my buddies. Thirty Eight Special, we run into them, and they, you know, everybody's still playing well and uh, and they're drawing you know good crowds. So yeah, pretty happy about that. It, it is interesting to see, you know. It, it, you think, okay, eventually someone, you know, you think I, I've seen that band X number of times, and they come back, and you're like, you know, it was such a good time last time. I need to go again, you know. And that's literally the truth. And 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 you know, when you talk about, obviously, you have to play certain songs, but when you mix in different stuff, I think that really helps the repetitive fan. You know, there there are bands out there that if you play 12 songs tonight. I can tell you three years from now you're going to play the exact same 12 songs. You know, the, and, you know, some of those bands will do very large numbers, but they're not a band after a while. You're like, why am I going to see that again? I could, you know, spout exactly. out the yeah, exactly. spout out what he's going to say between songs. I know what songs he's going to play. Yeah, we're just going to say that. I mean, some people have it done so rote that you could actually know what the banter is in between numbers. So yeah, yeah. That, that would be that's, that's the death for guys like me anyhow. So you know, we're we're basically blues jammers, you know. We like yeah. to jam and you know, improvise and fool around, and yeah, just to be that tight, you know, of a set and just that repetitive would just mm-hmm. seem so boring and, you know, really not fun. Yeah, it, it's it's and it's it's for a fan, it's it's really cool to see. You know, I, I love it when you go see a band and they pull out some obscure song from the fourth album that, you know, I was just talking to somebody the other day about that, you know had several platinum albums but they're throwing in some nice stuff from you know albums that maybe didn't go platinum maybe weren't you know the the hits and and that mm-hmm. that really keeps it fun for the person who's a true fan of that band 
um, as opposed to, you know, I think some people go to concerts because it's an event, you know, certainly, you know, I've heard of fog ad. I know slow ride. I'll go to the show, but you know, there's a proportion of your audience out there. And I'm sure you know it very well that, you know, they know all the words to the records. They probably know some of the songs you forgot or, you know, were on there or maybe you guys have never played. So that, those are the people that I think that's really enjoyable for. Um, so, and that's true. That's, that's exactly why uh, the people that we make new music for mm-hmm. are, are fans that know the band inside and out, know all the deep tracks. That's mm-hmm. why we keep in touch with them and ask them what they want to hear us play this year. And, and mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's our that's our fan base. I mean, that's why we're still working, and those are the people we play for. Yeah, awesome. The um, you mentioned the concert season. I mean, obviously, we're headed into kind of the you know the latter stages of. 2023 um and and travel becomes i'm sure a little bit dicier uh around the country do you guys kind of take the holiday season off and then it seems like a lot of bands do the literally do the cruise season um before kind of going to europe or or what are what are your plans for taking this particular album out to the masses well we're going to do a a record release party at the Iridium Club in New York um in a week or two uh right around you know the 10th release date time and we're going to do a release party in Los Angeles uh at the Coach House mm-hmm. and uh and then we already have three of the songs in our current set so um you know, we've already um you know starting to prepare we're going to be going to rehearsals you know to learn to put the the whole rest of the album on the stage mm-hmm. but it was one of the reasons I I recorded it. I produced this record and I did it, you know, naturally and very plainly so that these songs would translate to the stage. So that was something that was on my mind during this whole recording process of this new record. I wanted the songs to, you know, not be so overproduced that we couldn't reproduce them on stage. Right. And another interesting thing about this, but, you know, things fell down around the holidays, but we, you know, we do two or three shows in December and then, but that is when December and January generally when we go rehearse and, you know, do some recording and prepare for the next season. And because our the big time is like, you know, spring and summer. That's right. the majority of the shows. But we do play a couple shows all through the year. But um, one of the things that was cool about this album, and um, I'm sure you know uh, Kim Simmons from Savoy Brown. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, recently passed away. But, you know, of course, was one of the great British blues guitar players. And him and Roger were bandmates in, from the, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s. In fact, three members of Savoy Brown started Foghat in 1971, you know, Dave and Tony and Dick Roger. But we kept in touch with uh, with Kim. You know, I, I've known him for, you know, probably 15 years now, but Roger, of course, were lifelong friends. And we asked him, he performed on our last studio album, which was called Under the Influence. We uh, went to Nashville and um, with Tom Hambridge, great blues producer, and, and asked him to come down to guest on a couple songs, which he did. And funny enough, that seems like it wasn't that long ago, but it was seven years ago. But we asked him, you know, when we were preparing Sonic Mojo, if he had any demos he wanted us to, you know, listen to. And he sent us four songs, and three of them were really great and are on the album. So we, you know, took his demos and, you know, added our bit to it. And and the songs turned out really great. And, uh, you know, sadly, his health took a turn for the worse, and he passed away. We were hoping to have him play on the record, but... We're just um, pleased and blessed to have some of his last compositions on this record. So that's an interesting thing about this current one. Yeah, yeah, an amazing musician and a band that, um, you know, I, I think for a generation, at, at least 
my generation and, and younger really kind of criminally underappreciated in, in, you know, the history of classic rock. You think of, you know, your Zeppelins and Bad Company and things, but Savoy Brown, you know, for people, let's say, 55 and, and younger, isn't necessarily, you know, on the top of the list, but it's certainly one of those bands that um, I, I always right, en- I- enjoy discovering them because it's like a whole pandora's box of great music that you never knew existed you know and that's right and all in the same vein of that the music that i loved I, you know of course i knew of kim because oh, he played guitar and i was interested in guitar but sort of like john mayo albums you know yeah. i mean it was you know it's in that same blues rock you know playing like not like zeppelin you know like you said that little time difference there is a big deal but you know anyone that's I guess of my age, and that was interested in, in British blues, mm-hmm. and which was very, you know, informative for us young guitar players. You know, every great guitar player came out of Mayo's band, you know, Clapton, Peter Green, yeah. Mick Taylor, you know, and then Kim was right in there. Savoy Brown was, you know, a rock and blues thing, just like Mayo. So, you know, I, I was interested in them, you know, but you're right, there's that little separation of just a couple of years, you know, where some people just a little bit younger than me might not have appreciated Savoy Brown in particular as much as they yeah. could have or should have. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. But John Mayall, we just had the opportunity to speak to Coco Montoya, who played with John for a long time. Right. It's just such a, a a fertile soil to plant in, you know, to, to work with um, John. So it's 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 great stuff. And one of the things we love to help get the word out about is some of this great stuff. I had an opportunity to talk to Simmons um, back it was definitely before the pandemic. I think it might have been mid-2015, 2016, somewhere in there. So, yeah, it was disappointing to hear he passed. But uh, such a legacy. Yeah. Such a legacy. So, yeah, and he had just he had just released a, a really great album not not too long ago. I mean, I think it was just this, the beginning of this year or maybe the end of last year. But, mm-hmm. you know, it was a really great record. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, to, yeah, obviously, the, the Roger and, you know, you guys had, you know, taken a lot of that material forward and, and, and honor him in that way. That's that's tremendous. Um, the new album out November 10th, obviously digital. That's kind of a foregone conclusion. But can can people get this on vinyl? Yeah, we actually, in fact, <laughs> we just spent the, uh, we were did a show in Fort Myers where we signed uh, over 525 vinyl albums you know we sat in a room for a couple of hours yeah. had a few drinks and we, and we, so there's, um, there's going to be a short run of um, vinyl purple vinyl 180 gram really high quality um, yeah so it's great to see that format have another day in the sun uh, but it's uh, there's going to be you know collectors the vinyl will be available there's five I think there's a couple thousand when you know, we're printing and 500 of them were signed and they're available on the website as a pre-sale and um, and of course, and of course they'll, they'll be available everywhere at some point. You know, once the release date hits and they hit uh, all the outlets. But of course, digital. You know, all the streaming and downloading sites. And um, you know, streaming is such an issue. Uh, you know, and topic of among musicians. But um, I always encourage any music fan to buy a, your favorite band CD. You know, you make about a thousand times more profit on that and streaming so you know streaming is a nice convenience yeah and uh but it's uh, as far as artists uh making any kind of money it's not a, the greatest format you know other than convenience so yeah. i always just say you know pick up pick up a cd if you like want to support your band buy a t-shirt yeah. <laughs> you know yeah that kind of thing. 
Yeah, the T-shirt might be the, the be-all, end-all, but uh, we often try to encourage people to buy the CD, yes, but then go ahead and stream it if you want, because you give you a few extra fractions of a penny on top of the purchase price of the CD. Yeah, right. Uh, and, and you know, I mean, it's a you know, streaming is a is a brilliant thing. You know, I mean, I the one the one thing I you know I love about it when you go on any any site, you know, you start doing a deep dive. You know, you mm-hmm. listen to a couple songs that leads you to another song. You know, it's like a a library of you know the history of music it's uh fantastic um, but you know there's it, it just um you know there's other ways to help support your artists and that you love and uh you know so, so it's all good you know get your music out there you know when i think about the old days when you couldn't even make a record without a record company and now you can you know yeah make a record on a laptop and, and get it out to the world and um so you know digital yeah. the digital divide is a big subject to talk about but it's interesting you know i find it interesting as an engineer it's it can be such a rabbit hole you know as a listener though because you know i i still enjoy the fact that you know the physical media takes me to listening to the complete piece of work you know where you know Mm -hmm. streaming i think that the natural you know you you hear a song and you're like you know the first 30 seconds isn't doing it for me necessarily so you just skip along you know, and you never really live with with it then, you know, the way you would have, you know, in the 70s with a record player, you know, or 80s with a cassette right. in your car where you had three, four cassettes with you, especially in the car. I always think that was one of the greatest places to really grow to love music because you didn't have an unlimited supply of them. So you took the time to listen to it, you know, whether it was that great or not. Right. And, and sometimes things will grow on you and people don't let music grow on you anymore. Um and that, that's unfortunate, um, you know. But I think the technology yeah, makes certain, it so easy. Fell, yeah, certain things fell by the wayside, like sequencing. I mean, that, that was a big deal when you made yeah, a record, and absolutely. you know, it's a big deal when we're doing vinyl now. It's become an issue, you know. How, I mean, down to the point is like, how, you know, how many seconds do you want in between songs? You know, your mm-hmm. between your ballad and your rocker. Or what order should you do? You want your fans to listen to the songs in? I mean, mm-hmm. in the song order. You know, when things went digital, you know, it all came al- alphabetical, you know, and there's no sequencing. And so that's the whole artistic side, you know, not to mention, you know, albums and the artwork, you know, shrinking down to, you know, to CD size. You know, that was a big part of the listening process in the 70s and vinyl era, you yeah. know, record era. You know, yeah. there was this, uh, it was a listening experience. You know, and then, then you could, then people started putting 15 songs on CDs, which is almost an average, you know, 12 to 15. You know, listen to some of the greatest records of the 70s. You know, there's like maybe three or four songs aside. Yeah. So you're not totally like beat over the head with so many songs. You get fatigued, you know. Yeah, I, so I that's wholeheartedly. Yeah. You, know? you know, there are a lot yeah, of great lot albums of with eight songs, you know. <laughs> and then you get that uh-huh. 15, you're like, you know, you get bands that would do like double CDs. You know, unless it's a live album, you really need to have something special to do a double CD. You know, that was... You know, or, or four vinyls now. Um, you, you know, you're flipping the thing over every two seconds. But um, e- yeah, even right, you know yeah. how compression has played a role. You know, from you know your, your experience with recording, I'm sure you're painfully aware of how compression and earbuds and you know you need to consider mm-hmm. how the music's consumed so much and how it's produced. Um, yeah, I'm still amazed at, at MP3s that if, you know, say of the standard, uh, you know. 44.1 mm-hmm. CD track is like 50 megabytes, you know, mm-hmm. how you can get that down to five and have it still sound like a song. It just still boggles my mind, you know? Yeah. But, uh, 
how you can remove so much information and still have it sound like a song is amazing technology. But, you know, coming from an analog world and coming from two-inch tape as an engineer and moving into digital, you know, there was a time where digital didn't sound very good. It's getting very good now and almost indistinguishable, but, you know, it is that sine wave thing and it is the, uh, you know, the digital mm-hmm. conversions, you know, that makes up stuff really, you know, but yeah. it's, it's getting such a high resolution now it's not very noticeable. It wasn't yeah. first. But yeah, yeah, so you know that that was a interest from a, my engineering background. That it was interesting to see that transition and the whole industry move from you know we probably worked at a blues studio. So we were way old school tube mic, you know, yeah. all, everything analog tape, and then to have it all move, you know, over the years into digital, uh, pretty fascinating. Yeah. I don't know what started me on that subject. <laughs> no, I, like, a, I like to talk shop about it, I guess. Oh, no, no worries at all. Brian, I want to thank you so much for time again. The new record, Sonic Mojo, will be out November 10th, and we look forward to seeing you at some point. I know you'll be back in, in the hometown of Pittsburgh doing a show for us before long, and we'll see you when you get back at home. Yeah, I always look forward to getting up there and seeing my friends and family. And uh, hey, go Steelers, man! <laughs> I'm I'm in Florida, but I'm I, I'm representing black and gold down here. All right, that about wraps up this episode of Iron City Rocks. Kind of a long one. Thank you to Brian Bassett, Robert John Burrison, and Jerry James Nichols. Again, Jerry James will be here at the Craft House on the 28th of November. Robert John the Wreck, 6th of December at Jerkles, and Fog Hat as we talked about in that interview i am sure as i am talking to you we will see them sometime in the in the warmer months of 2024 as we often do with fog hat always great to see brian come home and do a show for us so i want to thank all of them you can visit us at ironcityrocks.com email is ironcityrocks at gmail.com let us know what you think bands that we may have missed how did we go this many years without talking to jared james nichols let us know. Drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. IronCityRocks.com and all of our social medias are Iron City Rocks. We're doing some ticket giveaways and December turning the page here very soon means one thing. The return of our Pittsburgh Music Awards. I'll take a moment to talk about those as the nominations have not yet been put up. But just for uh, clarification, the nomination process is that you go on, fill out the form for the artists from Western Pennsylvania based on the merit this year in different categories. Best guitarist, best bass player, best vocalist, best album, best song, best club. A bunch of different categories. Uh, these are 100% nominated by the fans. No one involved with Iron City Rocks nominates anybody. We don't pick any of the nominees. There are literally times where we haven't even heard the nominees. Um, shame on us for that. But once the nominees, we will we'll take the top three in each of those categories. And then the voting for the finals, which will begin closer to Christmas, 100% based on your vote. Again, nobody from Iron City Rocks picks anybody. So the reason we bring this up now is we don't want you coming to us in january saying hey why wasn't my band nominated why were we overlooked this is your call to action start getting your fans interested now and being on the lookout for that nomination to open up this is your chance to get nominated um there's no advertising i know uh there are several awards in the pittsburgh music and entertainment industry that have paid advertising on their ballots so you'll go to the ballot to vote for your favorite concert venue and there'll be an advertisement for one of them 
right there, which um, to us is just crap. Um, we take no advertising. We involve in no way in the selection process for any of this. This is 100% fan voted. So be on the lookout for that in January. Also a bunch of great concert uh, ticket giveaways to be going on. Uh, and always, we keep you abreast of all the concert announcements. As you know, 2024 shaping up to be another killer summer. So until next time, thank you so much for listening. Yeah.